BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Well, I don't know what you call it, but you cannot call it a State of the Union speech. What a clown show last night. A super hyper-partisan campaign rally by Donald Trump for the Republican Party. Hello, everybody. Here we go. Wednesday, February 6th, the morning after um, probably the longest and the worst State of the Union speech uh, in history. Uh, what do we do to deserve this, right? We had the worst Super Bowl in history Sunday night, and two nights later we got the worst State of the Union. It's speech. only Wednesday. Uh, yeah, this it's is only such a terrible Wednesday. week. I mean, Jesus, what else can happen this week, right? <laughs> God, we've suffered enough. Give us a break. But such as it is, we will uh, take you through that uh, embarrassing, disgusting uh, hour and a half that we heard last night from a man who uh, claims to be president of the United States. God, I guess he is. Uh, and delivering just the exact opposite of what the White House, of course, promised ahead of time, which was a moment to put partisan differences aside and bring us all together as a country. Uh, the big, the divider in chief. Uh, was at his worst or best, whichever you prefer, last night in terms of dividing the country. We'll tell you all about it. We'll take you through it. We'll get some reaction from our guest and get comments from all of you. Uh, I know. Come on. You couldn't resist it. You had to stay up and watch the whole thing. So send us your comments about the State of the Union. Anything else in the news on Twitter, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. I haven't seen a tweet yet from... Uh, the president of the United States yet this morning. So the lanes are clear. Uh, <laughs> right. Not a lot of traffic on the road yet. Get your comments in on Twitter at BP show. But first, this is the full court press. Just a couple of other stories making news. If you were looking for an excuse to not work out, here is one for oh, you. I need one. A man who went jogging in Colorado. He went jogging on a trail. He was out for a run. And he got attacked 
by a mountain lion Uh-oh. while he was out for a run. This happened on the west ridge of the Horsetooth Mountain Open Space. It's a mountain park about 66 miles uh, northwest of Denver. It was a juvenile mountain lion, attacked him from behind, began biting and clawing the man's face, back, legs, and arm, arms. But the man fought back and actually killed the mountain lion mm. in self-defense. Now, normally I'm on the side of the animals in these situations. Yeah. Uh, but the animal pounced on him from behind. He turned around. He fought it off. He's still in the hospital. It looks like he's going to be fine. But he was he was pretty seriously That's mauled. highly unusual, first of all, for a mountain lion to attack uh, uh, a human. And second, they usually go after women. Yeah, young it, women. I it's mean, they're true. looking for prey that they can take down. So. It's true. Hmm. Uh, but the man survived. The juvenile mountain lion did not. Uh, he is in the hospital and expected to be okay. But just think about that. If you're trying to find an excuse to why not go, why shouldn't I go out for a run today? Now you could add because I might get attacked by a mountain lion uh, on your list of uh, reasons not to. Uh, living in mountain lion country in California, yeah. my. One of my big regrets in life is I've never seen one. I know they're there. I wouldn't call that a regret. <laughs> I do. I don't want to see them with the teeth in my neck. Fair. But fair, fair. You want to see one certain distance. from a distance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You feeling stressed out about work, Bill? Hell no. Oh, well, you're not, you are in the minority. There's a new survey out that shows that uh, over half of Americans consider themselves workaholics. They say they spend, they work for four hours a week for free, and they spend another four hours a week just thinking about their job. 53% of Americans said they were stressed out from work. So <laughs> that is over half the country. They're feeling the pressure. Yeah. You know, relax, right? What can you do about it anyway? I, I mean, I guess that's fair. Everything is, you know, I, I would expect you to be a little more stressed because what you have to cover. Donald Trump. Uh, well, that is pretty stressful, but I just don't take him seriously. There you That's go. All. This is the Bill Press Show. All we can say about the last night's State of the Union is, thank God it's over. God, if Donald Trump had his way... <clears throat> He'd still be up there spouting lies and shooting off insults at everybody uh, that did not agree with everything he says and introducing totally unrelated people in the gallery. Hello, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show here on the morning after Wednesday, February 6th. Hello, hello, hello. It's great to see you. Uh, I know we're all feeling uh, dragging a little bit today because uh, we had to sit through that uh, hour and a half uh, ridiculous uh, thing that passes for a State of the Union address. Uh, and then I wanted to stay up to see Stacey Abrams, too, I thought, who did an excellent job in an impossible situation. Um, it's, it's awfully hard to follow a State of the Union speech because you're not really sure what he's going to say um, until he says it. And then you've got to have your speech already written. At any rate, Stacy, good job. Uh, but boy, uh, could not could not t- make up for the uh, horrible job that uh, Donald Trump did last night. And of course, that's mainly what we're going to talk about today with all of you and with our guests here on the Bill Press Show. So get ready to send us your comments, uh, your thoughts about last night's State of the Union and where we go from here. Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. 
whether you're following us online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, or joining us on the radio statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and all over the great city of Chicago. I hope it's warmed up out there. And uh, the Chicago Roundabouts on WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago. And we also want to hear from you if you're watching us on television on Free Speech TV. Again, this Wednesday, February 6th, as we come to you, as always, from our studio on Capitol Hill, just down the street from the United States Capitol Building. You could hear the helicopters buzzing around uh, last night, uh, starting at about 8 o'clock, and then to hear the motorcades coming up to the Capitol. We're right, uh, right, right in the lap, almost, of the Capitol and the State of the Union speech. Boy, where do we start? I got to tell you, um, the, the takeaways, I guess, right? First of all, look, let's stop calling it a State of the Union speech. This was not a report on the State of the Union. The State of the Union speech has become... And by the way, it didn't start with Donald Trump, but it now, under Donald Trump, has definitely become, more so than ever, nothing but a partisan political rally. And that's what it was last night. I don't care what the president said about unity. I don't care what promises the White House made about this is a speech to bring the country together. Uh-uh. The president spent an hour and a half telling lies. But first of all, saying Nothing new. There was nothing new last night. It was a recycled speech about the border, about the economy. He spent the first half of the speech, or first third of the speech, let's say, bragging about all the great things he had accomplished. Most of it lies, lies, lies. Uh, And then a third of the speech, and we've heard that before, by the way. He does that every campaign rally. A third of the speech uh, was also making his case again about the wall, the same kind of fear-mongering that we've heard from him about the wall before, with all the lies. Uh, One-third of the women who are coming up the north are sexually assaulted. Zero evidence for that. Sure, there's some cases of that, regretfully, despicably, but Donald Trump's claim doesn't hold water. It's not true that there are buses bringing people to the border. It's not true that these caravans represent a crisis at the border. It's not true that they're filled with murderers, terrorists, drug dealers, rapists, and on down the line, on and on. We've heard it so many times before. And then a third third of the speech was related to that. And then a third of the speech, I got to tell you, was related, was, was taken up, introducing people in the galleries who had, for the most part, Absolutely nothing to do with the State of the Union and nothing to do with Donald Trump or Melania Trump, nothing that he had helped them out at all. It was heartwarming to see. I'm sorry. I know some of you are going to react to this, think I'm cold-hearted. I think every one of them introduced was a waste of time. Even the little girl who, who uh, uh, remarkably, it looks like, has, has uh, after helping St. Jude Hospital, got cancer herself, and it looks like she's in remission. That's great, that's great, that's great. But what did Donald Trump have to do with that? Nothing. He was exploiting and using her and everybody else that he introduced last night to try to put some glory on himself. And, of course, people right went along with it, including 
including uh, the cop who rushed into the synagogue in Pittsburgh and the man who was at the at the uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh um, was not shot, but he was there. He was a witness. He survived that incident, uh, and he was there on his 81st birthday. What did Donald Trump have to do with that? Nothing. In fact, remember the people of Pittsburgh told Donald Trump, we don't want you to come to Pittsburgh after that because you are partly responsible for the hatred that has been whipped up in this country uh, against certain people. Yeah, I, And you are the man who said that the neo-Nazis and the anti-Semites in Charlottesville had a point, and there were some very good people among them. So the people of Pittsburgh said, don't come here, right? And yeah. then he brings those two people to the to the State of the Union speech. And, of course, everybody applauds them, And but Donald Trump doesn't deserve any credit for that. It's yeah. just dis- disgusting. You ask what Donald Trump had to do with that shooting in Pittsburgh. I, I would argue he had a lot to do with that shooting in Pittsburgh. When you look at his rhetoric and you look at what yeah. he said, uh, to your point about what happened in Charlottesville, the very fine people that were neo-Nazis that were there, uh, it's remarkable that that someone who was a, a witness and a and a victim, and one of the most heinous crimes that we've ever seen committed here, would show up and glorify Donald Trump oh, yeah. for his role in it and allow themselves to be used that way. Yeah. You know, even look again. I know I'm going to get all kinds of hit for being too cruel here, but <laughs> even Buzz Aldrin. You know what, Buzz Aldrin, great American. Yes, brought glory to this country and honor to this country by planting that American flag on the moon. What the hell was he doing at the State of the Union last night? Nothing to do with Donald Trump. Donald Trump didn't make that happen, didn't have anything to do with that. He was using Buzz Aldrin, and we let that well, let him get away with that. But, my, you know, my biggest takeaway from last night is cancel the freaking State of the Union from now on. We don't need it. Have them send it up in writing. And if they do have it, I know it started with Ronald Reagan, and everybody's done it, including Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, no more guests introduced. It, you know what? It would cut the length of the State of the Union in half. Look, I, I, I've got a lot in of half. gripes. I have a lot of gripes with what Donald Trump no said more last guests. night. My biggest gripe, the length of the of the speech. Yeah. I mean, it was too long. It was too long. And you're right. If you cut out the guests and all the applause and they sang happy birthday to one of them, I mean, what are we doing? Yeah. What yeah. are we doing? Yeah. And then, yeah, the Republicans, they're, t- <laughs> they're such patsies for Donald Trump. It's It was embarrassing. It, they really were like giddy school kids, you know, jumping up and down. USA! 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 Because he said, I don't know, he said something about the wall, right? I mean, uh, and reacting to everything, if there was any, pardon me, any doubt uh, that the Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump, boy. And no doubt after, pardon me, after last night. Uh, let's. There was one glorious moment in the speech, and by the way, there no two glorious moments, but they're related. The one was seeing Nancy Pelosi sitting there in her suffragette white behind the president of the United States. That was glorious to behold, and Nancy, I thought, perfect, meaning she rolled her eyes. She applauded when it was a right to applaud, but she did not stand or did not applaud when Donald Trump went into his partisan rants, most of which was most of the speech. Um, she, I'm sure she didn't plan to do this, but she was wondering, like everybody else, how long is this thing going to go on? So she would pick up the text of the speech 
and hold it up and be reading to find out where he was and how many more pages were left. <laughs> and she did that several times, which was which was a great reminder of that all of us were thinking, how much more can there be to, to, to this thing? So that was one great moment. Uh, and the other great moment was seeing the sea of white in the audience and, of course, all on the Democratic side of members of the women members of the House of Congress. There are, I wrote it down, there are 102 women in the House of uh, Representatives. 13 of them are Republicans. <laughs> all the rest are Democrats. And, 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 when, and we'll play this in just a second. When Donald Trump recognized how many women are now in the Congress, uh, that was their moment, and they really were dancing in the aisles uh, at that reference. So a little bit of the sound last night uh, just reminding us of um, the whole pageantry, if you will. It started out, and I was waiting for this moment, when the sergeant-at-arms announces the president of the United States is walking in. And, of course, not it wasn't this time. Mr. Speaker. Madam Speaker. Yeah, and then, so then the president started out by saying, and this was right away, this note of unity, we need to reject, he said, down there, the politics of revenge and the politics of resistance. But we must reject the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution, and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good. All right. Well, you know, you can say, oh, man, we're off to a good start. The next two years are going to be different. Donald Trump recognizes that there is now a divided government. And so we're going to have to work together and we're going to have to compromise and we're going to reach across the aisle uh, and uh, put put behind us the politics of revenge and resistance. And then he turned around to preach re revenge and resistance for the next hour and a half, basically. You know, started with that phony call for unity and then proceeded to divide like never before. Uh, for example, the, he gets onto the wall and he says, nobody else could build this wall? Guess what? I'm going to do it. In the past, most of the people in this room voted for a wall. But the proper wall never got built. I will get it built. There it is. Notice wall, wall. I want my wall. And again, the implied threat that if I don't get it, I'm going to, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to build it with an emergency declaration. It was also a throwback to the RNC where, you know, I alone can fix it. I alone yeah. can fix it. Good I point. will get right. it built. Yeah, right. That's what he says. And he talks about, oh, no. Uh, again, every time he talks about the wall, there's a little different description of the wall. This is the wall now he's talking about. This is a smart, strategic, see-through steel barrier, not just a simple concrete wall. It will be deployed in the areas identified by the border agents as having the greatest need Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a see-through concrete, I mean, uh, steel structure wall. We're not sure what he's... Uh, 
are the solar panels still on top of it? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? And is there the door is still in the middle so the uh, people who are picking grapes can come in and out? I mean, as he <laughs> told some people one day, you know, God, who knows? It's all over the place. Uh, but he did say, again, we need this wall because these caravans full of murderers are heading to our border. Same old, same old spreading of fear that he does every time he talks about the border. As we speak, as we speak, organized caravans are on the march to the United States. Yes. In fact, he said, by the way, which uh, nobody has found any evidence for, that cities in Mexico, uh, actually, and we, we mentioned this last week, Mexico has made it easier for refugees to stay in Mexico and get a job in Mexico and live in Mexico and not necessarily come all the way to the border. Which, by the way, is a big win for the Trump administration. Which is something Trump was demanding that they do, and they did, and he has given them no credit for that. Zero. And not recognize it. Yeah. Instead, he asserted last night that the cities in Mexico are actually hiring buses, chartering buses, to put and putting these people on the buses, and now they're no longer the caravan, no longer wa- walking, but they're coming up in chartered buses to the border. Uh, again, zero evidence of that. Nobody has seen that at all. Uh, so, what does he mean when he says we need unity? Well, the one thing we can't have, he says, is we can't have uh, even the Democrats in charge. We can't have any investigations. Oh no, no, no! And the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars, politics or ridiculous partisan investigations. Uh, he says this. This is a man. Right. Uh, just, just one more. He says, you either have to have peace or war. If there is going to be peace and legislation, <laughs> there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. Somebody, but, somebody thought that they were the, being very cute by by coining that phrase and putting it out there. They were yeah. hoping that that would stick, and it's just BS. No, it is BS. First of all, there's so much wrong with that. First of all, he's sort of equating the war in Afghanistan with an oversight investigation into the Congress, or the war in Iraq or the war in Syria with Robert Mueller's investigation. He doesn't say what partisan investigations he's talking about, but you know what he's talking about. He's talking about any investigation that's looking into him or into his administration. Uh, So he's talking about reckless partisan investigations. The ones that are ongoing are being conducted by the New York State Attorney General, the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York, the Justice Department, and the FBI, right? They're hardly reckless partisan investigations. And as far as the Democrats in Congress are concerned, they haven't held a hearing yet. But part of their job is to hold oversight hearings. So basically, Trump is saying, if you hold one hearing or conduct one investigation, then all bets are off for a bipartisanship. All bets are off for... Uh, working, working together. Um, and by the way, in the spirit then of uh, bipartisanship, in the spirit of compromise, uh, having accused Democrats of being, remember that line, what was the, the, the line? Um, something like, if I can get it straight, wealthy politicians call for open borders while they're living 
in gated communities, in communities with, with uh, guards and gates at the door. Walls, essentially, is what he's trying to say. <laughs> yeah, right. Again, I, I still have yet to find anybody who is calling for open borders. Right. Right. But talk about a guy who lives with security and always has in the Trump Tower, even before he was president. I mean, come on. Uh, but at any rate, um, in terms of the, the this reaching out and we have to sort of work together. So he accuses the Democrats of being for open borders uh, and then accuses the Democrats, get this, of actually preaching socialism in this country. We are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. Uh, now, exactly <laughs> who is he talking about? I mean, the cameras went look, looked at uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, okay, Bernie Sanders used to call himself a democratic socialist. I don't think he does anymore. But what's Bernie Sanders, what's his big issue? Medicare for all. It's not socialism. What What is AOC's, maybe he's talking about her, what is her big issue? Raising taxes on the rich. That's not socialism. I mean, this whole thing is just total phony, phony baloney. And again, a mindless partisan attack, uh, which is what the speech really was uh, all about. He did make a little news last night when he said uh, people thought he was, maybe was, and then was not going to announce this, but he did choose this time to announce the next summit meeting with Kim Jong-un. Chairman Kim and I will meet again on February 27th and 28th in Vietnam. Uh, okay, but by the way, fine. Second summit, that's good. It's better that they're talking than this. But then he can't resist again. Me, 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 me. Do you realize how lucky we are to have Donald Trump as president? He tells us. If I had not been elected president of the United States, we would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea. That is actually insane. There is no evidence for that, right? What is that? What is that based on? His ego? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, I. I mean, if anybody was threatening war with North Korea, it was Donald Trump in the first six months of his presidency. Remember, fire and fury. They're going to see fire and fury like they've never seen it before. You know, it, it's really interesting you, when you talk to people who, uh, you know, covered the transition from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. And that first meeting that Barack Obama and Donald Trump had after Trump had won the election and and uh, he met with Obama, uh, there was a lot of reporting done that Barack Obama told him, you know, yeah. the, the thing that, that we are most worried about right now, one of the things we are most concerned with is North Korea. And we should take it seriously, and it, this this could end up being a bad situation if you don't tread lightly. Well, he did the exact opposite of treading lightly. He, he treaded uh, uh, very heavily. Yeah, <laughs> Donald Trump did. And like, no, we all thought we were going to be at war yeah, with North yes. Korea under Donald Trump, not Absolutely. under Barack Obama. Absolutely, he was Absolutely. the one who was doing the saber rattling. Yeah, right. so he just had uh, in his head that this was some horrible <laughs> thing that that was unavoidable, and and he somehow avoided it. By the way, also in the spirit of bipartisanship, it's worth pointing out that uh, 
uh, at the lunch uh, yesterday with the uh, TV anchors, network anchors. Uh, every president does this the day of the State of the Union. They invite the network TV anchors in for lunch at the White House. Uh, and it was at that lunch that he called Chuck Schumer a nasty son of a bitch. Yeah, in the spirit of bipartisanship. Yeah, Mr. Unity. Mm-hmm, Mr. Unity, right. As, as I mentioned, uh, the one fun moment was when uh, he did – I don't think he realized how much – how much attention that he was giving uh, the fact that there are so many Democratic women elected, new members of Congress. Uh, but they were very feisty and looking for a moment last night. And it started out when he said there are more women in the workforce. And I noticed at first people didn't quite get it. And then a couple of the Democratic women went like, yeah, us. And then people started picking that up and laughing. And they all stood up and cheered. And then he comes to the next line. Don't sit yet. You're going to like this. (laughs) And exactly one century after Congress passed the constitutional amendment giving women the right to vote, we also have more women serving in Congress than at any time before. And they're all high-fiving and dancing at the time. And Nancy Pelosi stood up and gave that great little applause line there. Applause there to the president at that point. So, the, but by the way, just to be clear, all that cheering those were those were the thirteen Republican. Uh, uh, yeah, women. right. Yeah, those were the it's, only ones cheering. <laughs> uh, one hundred and two, one hundred and two women in Congress. Uh, Thirteen of them uh, happened to be Republicans. Uh, you know, so we'll talk more about the State of the Union with our guests coming up, starting with uh, Jesse Lee from the Center for American Progress. Uh, there's one other story that uh, that came out. We got got to talk about this. Uh, they're trying to find out how much it costs. We've talked about this. How much it costs every time the president goes to Mar-a-Lago? How much? Well, how much it costs us because we're paying the whole freight. Um, so the Government Accounting Office, Accountability Office, um, has they were set up to provide this information for members of Congress. Uh, they've been trying to find that out uh, about Mar-a-Lago. And they can't get the exact cost because the Defense Department won't give them all of their budget, uh, their, their costs. The Secret Service says it's secret. They won't, they won't release all of their numbers. And the White House will not release all of their numbers. But based just on what the Government Accountability Office could find out, they looked at four visits to Mar-a-Lago, the first four maybe in the in – the, uh, in the in the Trump under the Trump administration, in the in the spring of 2017, they looked at four four visits, which cost thir- Again, this is only part of it, thirteen point six million dollars, or an average of over three million dollars for each trip. So that that covers as you, what, that covers a one month period. One month. One right. month, from February 3rd to March 5th, yeah, right. $13.6 million. Yeah. So $13.6 million a month. A month, right. So uh, every time he goes, right. And then, again, uh, the cost of the Secret Service, which are considerable, all the extra detail he's got to have down there, both at the golf course and at Mar-a-Lago, and the transportation, not included. Defense Department, the boats that they have to you know, or patrolling like Coast Guard or whatever offshore when the president is there, uh, not counted. And 
a lot of the White House staff that accompany the president but were also paid for, not included in this. So it could be 50% higher. Yeah, totally. Then it could be four and a half million or five million for every trip to Mar-a-Lago. And uh, he has been to Mar-a-Lago. I saw this number here. Seven, I think it's seventy-eight days so far uh, in his presidency. Uh, Eighty-one days. Eighty-one. Eighty-one days. days. There yeah. you go. Yeah. yeah. He's taken nineteen trips to Mar-a-Lago since he took office, mm-hmm. uh, spending all or part of eighty-one days there. Uh, and by the way, it, this has been a, a pretty good for business at Mar-a-Lago. They uh, they also yeah. identified sixty thousand dollars in expenses that were paid directly to Mar-a-Lago for just the four trips. So four trips, sixty grand right into Mar-a-Lago. Right. Uh, there was a group of senators last night, um, uh, yesterday rather, Senator Diane Feinstein of California, Gary Peters of Michigan, and Congressman Elijah Cummings of Maryland put out a little statement saying, "quote." This is part of a troubling pattern of wasteful spending and serious abuse of tax dollars by the administration. We will keep investigating this issue to ensure that taxpayer dollars are being used effectively and appropriately. Um, They're certainly not being used effectively or appropriately, uh, just paying for the president's um, vacay days at Mar-a-Lago. And again, every time he goes, he's making money. He's not costing us money. He's making money. All right. More about the state of the union and your take on Twitter at BP Show. Jesse Lee joins us from Center for American Progress. Give us a quick break and we'll be right back with you. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. And here we go on a Wednesday, February 6th. The Bill Press Show, the morning after the State of the Union Address, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., and our studio on Capitol Hill, just down the street from uh, the United States Capitol Building, where the State of the Union took place last night with all of its pageantry and BS. Uh, And we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees. There were several members of the AFGE in the gallery last night making the point that we are the people that you uh, let and forced to work for weeks, two months, for a month, 35 days without a paycheck, including President J. David Cox of the AFGE in the gallery. Um, Curiously enough, he was not introduced by uh, Donald Trump last night among the guests in the gallery. Uh, Find out more about the great work of the members of the AFGE at their website, afge.org. Uh, and uh, continuing our uh, coverage and conversation about the State of the Union last night, joined by Jesse Lee, who is the Senior Advisor for Communications at the Great Center for American Progress. Hey, Jesse, good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. You watched the entire thing? Uh, yeah, that's, that's part of the job, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, people were asking me, are you going to watch the whole speech? I said, I don't have any choice. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Right. Now I asked the uh, cabbie on the way down here, did you watch it? And he turned around and looked at me like I was crazy. Like, <laughs> why, why would I do that? You know? Well, that man has some sense. That yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of our viewers and listeners uh, were watching uh, last night and, uh, um, Speaking out about it this morning, Peter. Yes, indeed. Before we're, we get 
more into it with Jesse. Yeah, we're on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. You talked about what a long week it's already been, Bill. It's it's only Wednesday yeah, morning. Yeah, starting with the worst Super Bowl in history and now the worst State of the Union yeah. in history. Uh, Romaine, who's in Chicago, says, "Well, we've had three seasons in the last week alone, oh. so you got to put that on top of everything else." Yes, of course. Uh, some reaction to the State of the Union. Okay, here we go. Bab Bab says, "I can summarize the State of the Union in two words." No investigations. Mm -hmm. uh, that is that is one way to look at it. Uh, John says everything Trump said and all that he left out, like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, voter suppression, gun control, are moot points if we don't address climate change. It is unbelievable that he did not even mention it. Fair point. I mean, I wouldn't say it's unbelievable. Not unbelievable Trump, to but, me. But uh, he yeah, he absolutely yeah, he... should have. Uh, you talked about the guests. Jerry said, uh -oh. I lost some respect for Buzz Aldrin, and I felt sad to see others used as props. What a spectacle of BS. Uh, yes, yes, I agree with that. And uh, that's uh, it. I mean, I felt sorry for them, too. They really allowed themselves to be used. And yeah, totally. Yeah. And Luna says the best part of the State of the Union was not Nancy Pelosi <laughs> behind Trump, but the fact that her Twitter account was tweeting about how wrong he was during the speech. She obviously had somebody running her Twitter account that was sort of rebutting the lies that he told during the State of the Union. Uh, which it would have been fun if she had her iPhone in hand and was just tweeting, tweeting like during the State of the Union. Yeah, just giving maybe she was giving Morse code through the like paper <laughs> shuffling, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, if you have a comment on any topic at any time, find us on Twitter at BP Show. BP Show. Right. Overall, Jesse, your impression. Uh, my overall impression is uh, Trump's big problem is that we all know who Trump is at this point, and you know there was kind of a hollowness in the room around that where everybody understood. You know, we don't need to really hear your grand vision because we see it every morning at 6 a.m. when you start whining about the Russia witch hunt. You know, we we get it. We know who you are. And so the whole thing kind of felt empty and hollow and phony to me. And everybody recognized it. And I actually agree with one of your, uh, you know, comments there that uh, the only moment that kind of seemed to pierce through that was when he denounced investigations as some sort of war and peace moment and a crisis for the country that anybody would ever dare investigate him, which, right. you know, it had this Nixonian feel to it. And it, it, it felt like both parties kind of like tensed up at it, you know? Well, yeah, it was right at the beginning of the speech. Uh, and it, was, it came right on the heels of his saying, uh, we need to put behind us all this... Um, politics of resistance and politics of revenge, and we have to move into this new era of working together uh, and compromise. Uh, and then he says here, uh, we can hear him again, that here's the only thing that the only thing that could get in the way of this new openness and, and working together, this new dialogue, there's only one thing that get, could get in the way um, uh, of those, it, and which we talked about the investigations. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. So he's equating, it's got, got a little jumble there, right? He's equating, it seems to me he's equating war in Afghanistan, war in Syria with investigations, right? As if it's war on him. Uh, 
But what investigations he wasn't ridiculous partisan investigations he called them. What was he ta- was he talking about Robert Mueller or was he talking about Adam Schiff? Uh, I mean, for him, I think he wants to kind of smush it all together, right? He wants to say that the Russia investigation, which obviously was a special counsel launched by his own appointee, Rod Rosenstein, is a partisan investigation. Oh, my gosh, it's the partisan investigations. And, I, you know, I was kind of debating with somebody at work, like whether he was going to raise the Russia investigation in the speech, and I kind of argued, well, listen, this is his one big shot where he's on all the networks, the biggest audience he'll have, and I don't think he can resist doing something on it because it may well end up defining the next two years of his presidency, Right, and he needs to try to do something to shape that. And when he talks about investigators who is under investigation uh, for his inaugural committee, which, by the way, Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday said has nothing to do with the White House. <laughs> ne- never met the guys. No, no, no. <laughs> so, um, so his inaugural committee is under investigation. His business is under investigation, right? His transition is under investigation. The president, his presidency is under investigation. I mean, I his have. campaign, every every aspect, and his personal life is still under investigation. Oh, his family, his foundation, Trump's university. Foundation. Yeah, right. I, 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 literally, <laughs> you know, Trump's trash collection is under investigation. Like, there's nothing he has touched that hasn't become corrupted almost immediately. And you know that in that ridiculous partisan investigations, he, in his own mind, of course, is including anything that the Democrats in Congress might do in terms of oversight hearings. Right. Yeah, of course. Of course. And I, you know, the this is his problem is you know, the the public has laid their verdict on this in the midterm elections. They want oversight of President Trump. They want a check on him above all, you know. And so him coming in and saying, well, you know, somehow you know, investigating me is war on America or what I, I, you know, whatever Dr. Seuss thing he was trying to say there. Yeah. I, uh-huh. Nobody is buying that. And I, I think you heard that almost in the reaction there. I mean, all night Republicans stood up in this kind of raucous applause and chanting USA, except for that one line where even Republicans seem to have a kind of moment of uh oh, you know mm-hmm. this isn't this isn't gonna end well, is it? <laughs> so the other thing that struck me last night is, remember the State of the Union happened last night and not a week before, because there was a government shutdown. It happened last night during this interim between shutdowns, right. or at least one <laughs> shutdown, one real one, thirty-five days, and another possible one. He never mention the word shutdown. Yeah, that's right. And I I think uh, Stacey Abrams did well in really kind of uh, sticking the dagger in on holding him accountable for that. Uh, Called it a stunt. Yeah, I thought thought that was one of the most powerful moments of her response, actually. And yeah, I mean, you know, to some extent, the whole kind of queued up narrative of unity and everything was... You know, this is what I mean when I say everybody knows what Trump's all about at this point, and everybody knows it's phony. Is you know, it uh, there's no there's been no more potent symbol of division in my lifetime politically than the wall. Um, I mean, set aside the fact that it's literally 
you know, a division, you know, that's yeah. what a wall is. But, you know, the entire point of the wall, the entire p- reason he's all in on this, the entire reason Ann Coulter's all in on this is to divide the country to spite the immigrant population, to spite the Latino population, to own the libs who are offended by the idea of the wall. The entire thing is for spite and division. You know, there, there's a reason he rejects actual border security and only wants the wall is because of the symbolic spite value. And we just got out of one government shutdown over it. Now he's threatening another government shutdown over it. And the only way out is apparently if he declares an illegal national emergency about it. Which, uh, which he again, he didn't talk about last night, but it was implied in several things that he said, right? right. Well, right. And I mean, more than that, the deadline is in nine days now. Yeah. So, you know, if this was supposed to be the speech that transformed how people think about Donald Trump, I guess there's a nine day deadline on that. Right. Um, He he talks, of course, as you point out, a lot about the wall, the wall, the wall, the wall. And he also talked about immigration and he made a statement on immigration, which raised a lot of eyebrows. In fact, and when he said it, um, I was watching at home with my wife, and I turned to her, and I said, "That's not true. They are doing the exact opposite." Uh, first of all, let's let's uh, listen to the clip and then talk about it. I want people to come into our country in the largest numbers ever, but they have to come in legally. Everybody thought it's that in the largest numbers ever, and Peter, you pointed out right that. That was an ad lib. Yeah, that was not on the teleprompter. Those were not in his prepared remarks. That one line. In the largest numbers ever. Was totally made up by Trump on the spot. (laughs) And the reason I reacted to it is because I know that Stephen Miller's plan is not only to stop all illegal immigration, not only to deport everybody who's here, who who came here, even if they came here, brought here as kids, came here illegally, but to cut back on legal immigration as well. That's been their stated policy for the last two years. Oh, that's right. It's one of their key demands as part of why the whole wall for DACA deal broke down. Yeah. Uh, was Stephen Miller all... probably had a stroke last night when he heard him say that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in fairness, uh, Stephen Miller and Donald Trump are fine with the greatest numbers ever from Norway. <laughs> right. Just oh, not, right. not the right. asshole countries. Right. You know? Yeah, that that <laughs> that was that was what was lacking there. I guess. Right. And right. today they'll probably explain it that way. Right. Well, they yeah. just ran out of time in the speech, you know. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the the even with the, the the late deadline, the speech not ending until about ten thirty last night. Um, the both the Washington Post and the New York Times, I think, did a good job this morning of fact checking already. There'll be more fact checking, but just going through a couple of them. Um, the Mr. Trump described illegal boarding crossing as an urgent national crisis. This is false. <laughs> I, I kudos to them for that. Border crossings have been declining for two decades. Mr. Trump said the economy added almost 600,000 manufacturing jobs. Uh, this is false. <laughs> the economy has added 454 manufacturing jobs since January 2017. Um, and it started, of course, under the Obama administration. Yeah, I mean, if I could say one thing on that, uh, I, I, you know, yeah. I was actually in the Obama administration for eight years, so we did, uh, I guess it would have been uh, seven so-tos. 
And, you know, one of the most difficult things is figuring out how to talk about the economy and the improvements in the economy and uh, the progress that's being made. And it's very tough because there are people that are, you know, not doing great. And in fact, you know, real wages have remained almost completely flat during this administration, um, even though the unemployment rate is low. Uh, And I think one of the things people kind of underappreciate and underestimate is the extent to which Trump's kind of unequivocal victory dance on these, you know, economic statistics and saying it's the best ever. You know, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, even people that weren't just furloughed by Donald Trump, uh, you know, that starts to ring pretty negatively. Not only does do they not believe it, but it starts to sound like, you know, the president's kind of spit in their face to just be saying, look at me, yeah. look how great yeah. I've done. And meanwhile, you know, they their dishwasher just broke and they can't afford to replace it. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, one more. Mr. Trump said that no president has cut more regulations. Uh, New York Times. This is false. Uh, actually points out that back under both Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter, there were more regulations cut, more government streamlining than uh, under Donald Trump. So it's just, I mean, he just asserts this stuff and it keeps people like Glenn Kessler for the Post and uh, this is Michael Tackett and Eileen Sullivan for the New York Times. Uh, oh, oh, this this one too. Remember he talked about El Paso? And I thought about that. I thought that sounds really weird. He said it was the... the um, most unsafe city, right, the most violent city ever in the country, and it is now one of the safest in the country. Uh, New York Times, Mr. Trump claimed El Paso turned from one of the most dangerous to one of our safest cities after a border barrier was built. New York Times, this is false. <laughs> <laughs> El Paso was never one of the most dangerous cities in the United States. And crime has been declining in cities across the country, not just in El Paso, for reasons that have nothing to do with border fencing. Right, right. Yeah, and this goes back to his big campaign lie of, like, <laughs> we're under this unprecedented crime wave and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then you look at statistics and it's down 80% over the past 20 years. So many a political, promising political career has been broken when people are giving the most impossible assignment in politics, which is probably that of responding to a state of the union. Because you have to write your speech ahead of time. You don't know what exactly, what it's going to say. There could be surprises. So it's never going to be really like a debate, right, point by point by point. Having said that, how does Stacey Abrams do? Uh, I mean, I think uh, the Democrats have had two SOTU responses under Trump, and they've both been better than a SOTU. I think uh, Kennedy last year was also exceptional. I think uh, Stacey Abrams uh, did a really amazing job of staking out how Democrats can embrace the kind of racial dimensions of Trump's war on the middle and working class and not have the messages be kind of fighting each other, if you know what I mean. You know, she made a very powerful case how all of these struggles of all the American people, all these stories are kind of intertwined and but also each deserve their recognition. Uh, Yeah, I did. I thought she did an excellent job, too. And again, not not out, maybe excellence, too, but a very good job. Uh, and um, 
uh, just the fact that the Democratic response was given by a Democratic woman of color right. from Georgia, I thought was very, was very powerful. Uh, and the, in this one clip, she did talk about an issue that is so important, um, voter suppression, and, uh, and speaking as one who was a victim of voter suppression in Georgia. Right. Let's be clear. Voter suppression is real. From making it harder to register and stay on the rolls, to moving and closing polling places, to rejecting lawful ballots, we can no longer ig- ignore these threats to democracy. Yeah, you know, and I, as I said, we've seen Bobby Jindal, Christine Whitman, Marco Rubio, and others in that situation who I think hurt themselves. I think she helped herself helped herself uh, as well as the party enormously last night. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. I mean, I think that entire section of the response was very powerful. Uh, she was kind of implicitly talking about HR one which is the House Democrats' kind of first big anti-corruption, pro-democracy bill. And, you know, she mentioned uh, the cynicism of calling access to the ballot a power grab, which was Mitch McConnell's response to H.R. 1. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Democrats trying to make uh, Election Day a federal holiday. Um, and I think <laughs> this connection between kind of the corruption, which is kind of become the core of the Republican Party at this point, you know, not just Donald Trump, but Mitch McConnell, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Paul Ryan before him, this totally transactional kind of corruption is very much part and parcel with voter suppression, right? Because, you know, what you do is you reward the big donors and then you keep the people that are kind of the victims of the corruption from the voter box. And I thought she did a very good job of tying those things together and making clear that voter suppression is not just some niche issue that happens mm-hmm. over there. Right. Yeah. This is something that goes to the heart of whether our elected representatives are actually representing their people or if they're representing their rich donors and their future lobbyist employers and trying to just keep everybody else from disrupting their plans. Right. Now, I, I don't want to get too catty, but can we talk about, I'll tell you what really bugged me a lot, is Donald Trump's delivery. I mean, he cannot read a teleprompter, right? Uh, first of all, it's, he's sort of, it's sort of this arrogant pose that he takes and the head nodding. and but The pursed lips, you know. pursed yeah. lips, yeah. And he reads it like a second-grade reader, you know, Duffy's reader or something. I mean, every word, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, he's not a gifted artist, shall we say, but it's it's more than that. I mean, he's very comfortable when he's in front of a crowd and just riffing on a crowd, right, you know, and building off that. His his fort is, is certainly not giving a prepared teleprompter speech. All in right. fact, I thought it was painful. I, th- I think that Donald Trump probably knew how to read at one point. <laughs> And I think that he's he said before he doesn't like to read that he just stopped reading for so long that he's kind of forgotten how to read. Yeah, I mean, I you know this goes back to my original. I point know they of, practice, uh, but the practice didn't uh, make perfect. Right. Well, I mean, that's one thing I wonder is you know uh, when President Obama was writing his speeches, it took place over weeks and weeks. There's countless revisions. You know, by the end, Obama knew his speech inside and out. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I 
find it hard to imagine Trump read every draft of this speech. The idea that Trump read the entire speech once is a little <laughs> bit of a stretch for yeah, me it's to a believe. Stretch. <laughs> the idea that he read it Here, several times, right. I don't know. Here's the lofty, lo- the loftiest the rhetoric got. Together, we can break decades of political stalemate. We can bridge old divisions, heal old wounds, build new coalitions, forge new solutions, and un- unhook, unlock, rather, the extraordinary promise of America's future. You know, that was written by a robot. Well, right. I mean, this goes back to my original point that, like, there is no person in America that watches him say that and says, yeah, well, that's really that's what's in his heart. That, that's that's really what he thinks. He really means no. that, what he just said. All right. Jesse Lee from the Center for American Progress, AmericanProgress.org. You can follow their great work there. We thank you for coming in, sir. No, thanks for uh, having sorry me. you had to put up with it last night. And when we come back, Alex Seitzwald joins us from NBC News this with his take on the news the of the day. Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Donald Trump, he starts out with a promise and a pledge of unity and working together. And then for the next hour and a half, just rips into the Democrats, accusing them of wanting open borders and socialism in the United States of America. Hey, what's wrong with a little socialism? What do you say? Hello, everybody. Good to see you. It is the Bill Press Show on a Wednesday, February 6th, coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., just down the street from the site of the State of the Union uh, last night. Uh, you know, you could hear the motorcades arriving at the Capitol and hear the helicopters overhead uh, all evening last night uh, and see the lights on on top of the Capitol until uh, almost midnight. Anyhow, it's good to see you today, and we'll bring you up to date on uh, the State of the Union, reaction to the State of the Union, uh, with the help of this first half hour of our good friend from NBC News, uh, Alex Seitzwald, their national political correspondent, particularly with a focus on 2020. Hello, Alex. Good to see you. Morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Everything good? Everything's good. How many candidates you got so far among the Democrats? Uh, um, I think we're, uh, we're we're approaching the double digits, but we're not quite there. I think we're, we're at seven, and we're going to... It sounds like we're going to be at eight uh, this weekend with Amy Klobuchar. With Amy Klobuchar, right? Yeah, right. No, you're not including Richard Ojeda. Uh, well, he has dropped out. He has so. dropped out. Oh, okay. I'm sorry oh, to right, say. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay, but and Beto yesterday with Oprah came very close too. Yes, Beto has emerged from his hiding place in the cave of solitude. Did somewhere. he drive his pickup to New York? <laughs> that's a good question. I, I don't know. <laughs> he made a road trip about it. He didn't. He didn't uh, write medium posts uh, along the oh, way. Oh, he, he did. didn't. Know. Yeah. But yeah. Right. So, so the, the big news though from that is he said he would make a decision on 2020 by the end of the month. End of the month. Which is a little bit earlier than uh, uh-huh. we had heard. Right. We heard earlier. Previously. So right. yeah. 
uh, earlier Jim than Harold, Howard Schultz, maybe. Right. Anyhow, there's so much to talk about. We'll get right into it um, with Alex and with all of you. And again, we invite your comments, as always, on Twitter, at BP Show, particularly your comments on the State of the Union. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Big news yesterday because the Pope was uh, flying back to the Vatican. And he had a little press conference on the plane where he publicly... This is his M.O. He always does this on the way home from a trip and usually yeah. makes news at it. He usually yeah. does. No, that's a very good point. He, and he certainly did yesterday. He acknowledged, I mean, his timing's not great. It's weeks, months after everybody else has noticed this problem. Uh, but he did acknowledge that there has been clergy sexual abuse of... Nuns. This isn't just about the child uh, molestation mm -hmm. and things like that. He talked specifically about the abuse of nuns. Now, this comes two weeks before there is going to be a very big conference in the Vatican where they are going to try and craft a response to uh, the uh, predators, predatory priests who are targeting children and also uh, superiors to help cover up that crime. But this was... The first time that he's acknowledged uh, the priests who target adult women, the nuns, uh, in the Catholic Church. I might point out this is still the same pope who refuses to entertain any question about allowing priests to be married. Yep. He's right on a lot of things. Well, contradiction here. Yep. Still wrong on that. You talked about what a long week it was. It started out with the uh, worst Super Bowl ever. Uh, the New, New England Patriots did, in fact, win the Super Bowl. But, of course, as expected, there will be multiple members of the team who will not visit the White House should Donald Trump invite them. First one out was Devin McCourty. He's a defensive back for the Patriots. Uh, he told reporters almost right after the game, I am not going to visit Donald Trump. Uh, also, safety Duran Harmon told TMZ he would not be joining it. In fact, TMZ caught up with him and said, uh, will you be attending the ceremony at the White House? And he said, nah, they don't want me there. That's a quote. That's a quote. And last year, didn't Donald Trump disinvite the team? Because too many... No, 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 no. Was, was he the had, the, he had the Eagles there last year. And he had the Patriots there the year before that. It was the NBA. Oh, the NBA. the NBA players yeah. that he okay. said uh, right. they were not invited anymore. <laughs> oh, from the, the Warriors. Yeah, the Warriors. <laughs> yeah, Steph Curry. No hamburgers for them. That's right. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. If I hadn't been elected president, we would be in the middle of a great big war with North Korea right now. Just one of the outrageous statements with Z backed up with zero evidence we heard last night in the State of the Union. What do you say? Hello, everybody. On a Wednesday, February 6th, here we go. The Bill Press Show. Good to see you. Good to have you part of the program today. And thank you for being, for joining us as we reach out to you, join you from our studio in Capitol Hill, and hook up with you everywhere you are in this great land of ours, whether you're following us and joining us online, on the radio, or on television. Good to see you. Lots to talk about. I know it was an hour and a half long. You may not have watched the entire thing, but uh, lots of the State of the Union to talk about and lots of national politics to talk about. Um, both of which, for both of which, we're glad to have uh, and welcome back to the studio for his first visit in the year of 2019, Alex Seitzwald, 
from NBC News. Alex, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Bill. Yeah. So um, we were wondering, uh, just briefly on the State of the Union, um, you know, this is a new government, a divided government. Um, after two years, this is going to be a little different scene uh, for uh, Donald Trump. We were wondering what changes or what differences we might see in Donald Trump looking forward to the next two years. What did we find out last night? Well, it's so hard to know with Donald Trump because you always get a different Trump on teleprompter than you do in the rest of his life. And uh, so it's hard to know what these State of the Unions even really mean, what you can take away from them. It was kind of a, a unity sandwich. He had good stuff on either end about how we all need to come together as Americans with the red meat in the <laughs> middle about <laughs> right. you know building the wall and, uh, and, and all that and how if he was not elected president, we would be at war with... with that was the most... Uh, outrageous thing I think he said the entire evening. It, it was, yeah, right. It, the, and then the other thing that stood out to me was uh, him saying that we have this great economy and global peace right now, but the only thing that can get in the way is ridiculous partisan investigations. So he's he's kind of essentially suggesting the entire economy is held hostage to what Robert Mueller uh, does there. It, it, was hard to, it was hard to know exactly what he was talking about because at first I thought he was talking about congressional hearings which he probably was, but he was also clearly then talking about Robert Mueller, the U.S. Attorney in New York, <laughs> the New York Attorney General. I mean, right. there, there are so many investigations going on, you can't keep track of them. Yeah, right. Is he referring to all of them, some of them? Uh, I don't know. But it's it's a it's a but, tough – I mean, the State of the Union is already – I was putting this out on Twitter asking people, you know, try to remember the last memorable line from a State of the Union. And the best answer that I got was, the era of big government is over – uh, from Bill Clinton, 1996, yes. which is a good answer. Yes. That's, that's, that's definitely a memorable that, line. Yes. But there's, you know, there's been a State of the Union or a Joint Address to Congress every year since then. You have to go back 23 years to find a memorable line. So it's already kind of a, a, a tricky institution to know what it really means. But with Trump especially, because what he says one day has no bearing on what he says the next day, and what he says on teleprompter has especially little bearing to what he says on Twitter or in the Rose Garden or everything else. Good for you. That was an interesting exercise. Um, and there's no right and no wrong here, right? It's just what you think. What you remember, yeah. What you remember and what you think will be remembered from the State of the Union last night. Uh, hmm. Uh, That's a good uh, question. It is. I mean, I'm torn between the two that you mentioned. Certainly, let, let's we can, we got them here. First of all, the the um, ridiculous partisan investigations, right? The only thing he said that can stop this demand or moment for unity is if there is going to be peace and legislation there cannot be war and investigation it just doesn't work that way yeah and just before that he called it ridiculous partisan investigation so that that certainly i guess will be a memorable line right especially to, depending on how these investigations bear out <laughs> yeah exactly uh, yeah right and then the other one was when he talked about the war in North Korea, which is, again, really just outlandish, right? Uh, his, how he saved us from nuclear war with North Korea. If I had not been elected president of the United States, <laughs> we would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea. <laughs> really? You can even see Republicans there sort of say, mm. 
And also, in light of the fact that for the first six months, he was the one that we were afraid was going to take us to war with North Korea. Right, when he was taunting Kim Jong-un as Little Rocket Man and, and everything. And they're going to see fire and fury like they've never seen before. Right. <laughs> right he right. promised that. He pro- yeah. yeah, right. He promised that. And now he calls his relationship with Kim Jong-un a very good one. And he announced last night that he's going to do a second meeting uh, with Kim Mm-hmm. At the end of this month in, in Vietnam, which, by the way, could you imagine the, the reaction if it was a Democratic president who announced a second meeting with with the leader of North Korea mm-hmm. after the first one has been kind of widely accepted to be not have accomplished much. And he also later said that he wanted to negotiate with the Taliban. Uh, so right in the uh, same right in the same in the same speech. Yeah, it's hard to, to imagine a Democrat. Getting he has that. asserted and uh, he did last night, I think twice. And he's done it before that the Taliban won peace. Right. He's painting the Taliban as like our friends, as not people we've been at war against for 17 years, and they won't even talk to the Afghan government. They refuse to talk to the Afghan government. They're talking to us. They've got to talk to the Afghan government if there's ever going to be any deal, right, any peace deal. But he's painting them, not the Afghan government, as the good guys. Yeah, those famous peaceniks, the Taliban. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, he he because he, he wants to get out of Afghanistan, which yeah, I think which, I think, by the way, we all do. Right. Uh, I think a lot of people agree with. And it was interesting. There was a vote in, in Congress where a lot of the, the 2020 uh, Democrats voted essentially with Trump in, in to, against a resolution that was condemning the, the rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan. But he can't. He needs to try to save face and, and, and declare victory somehow as he hopes to get out of Afghanistan. And I think building up the Taliban as a credible uh, opposition that you can negotiate with is the only way he can make that happen. Right. Uh, so Soshi Inohosa from the Democratic National Committee is going to join us at the uh, half hour, and we'll talk more about the State of the Union uh, with her. But I do, um, well, I've got you here, to want to talk about some of the 2020 developments because, as you pointed out, uh, Amy Klobuchar said she is going to, well, she's in Iowa this weekend Yeah. for a big speech. And we're expected to hear from her about what her plans are on 2020, which you have any inside information? Well, uh, th- so she's going to she said last night on Rachel Maddow that she's going to make a big announcement uh, Sunday in Minnesota, in Minneapolis or her hometown uh, and b- b- eagle eyed people on the Internet, which are there are many noted that uh, she also tweeted this out, that the that the tweet came from something called AFA Inc., uh, which is not the name of her Senate campaign account. Her Senate is called uh, Amy or Klobuchar for Minnesota. AFA could be Amy for America. Uh, HFA mm. was Hillary Clinton's account, Hillary for America, Obama for America. Uh, the big announcement. So it suggests it looks very much like she's she's doing this. And, you know, the, these announcements when you an- announce for president, we usually already know the news that, that you're going to make. Uh, so I think you can expect that Amy Klobuchar is going to be our, our latest entrant. Uh, into the twenty twenty okay. field. Well, with uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Kirsten Gillibrand, is there room for one more senator? Is there anyone left in the Senate? Yeah, yeah will, will they right. have quorum? Uh, it's a it's a great question. I do think there's room for a uh, another female senator. Another female, yeah. For, we'll have four female senators. It's kind of incredible. Um, but I do think there's room for uh, somebody who's a little bit more moderate uh, that that than is the the current field shaping up to be. Even somebody like Cory Booker, who has been considered more moderate in the in the past, has positioned himself to the left. He signed on to the Medicare for All bill uh, and is really you know 
branding himself that way. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a big lane in the party. I don't think it's the majority of the party, but there is maybe a third or maybe more that really wants somebody uh, who's going to not sign on to what a, you know all the, the progressive stuff, and Klobuchar could potentially accomplish that. She's also she's got a pretty good story to tell in Minnesota. She really overperformed Hillary Clinton there. Yes, uh, right. Uh, Clinton won the state, but very narrowly, and Klobuchar has won it big. And she won it a lot bigger than uh, uh, yeah than than, than Hillary's right. So. Something like twenty two points uh, mm-hmm. just just this last year. Uh, she's definitely been looking at this for a while. She's been doing a lot of interviews about it, rising, raising her her profile. Um, you know, she's not very well known nationally yet, but I think she's kind of a, probably an undervalued potential candidate at the moment. Right. Um, the one of the other candidates, um, Elizabeth Warren, made a little news maybe that she didn't want to yeah. yesterday. Yet another um, case has come out where she identified herself as an American Indian and this was in her application for the bar for the, uh, the the bar I guess in Texas right where she put ethnicity American Indian yeah this is actually I think maybe the biggest development on this uh, story which had been pretty easy to dismiss before but now the, so the, the, the whole controversy all along has been the claim that she improperly claimed Native American heritage to get advancement in you know jobs and uh, getting into universities and stuff. And here we actually have an example of her. And Harvard, that she got some... Right, some spe- special treatment. Spe- special treatment, right. Yeah, and there was a big, uh, very exhaustive Boston Globe investigation into this, which I it was it's an incredible piece of reporting. Uh, you know, it's very hard to prove a negative that, that she did not do this, but they essentially came as close to doing that as possible. And it seems pretty clear that the, her heritage was not at all a factor in her uh, employment at Harvard, yeah. nor uh-huh. at the University of Pennsylvania before that. But we now do, this is new information, have on this bar form, you can see it in her own handwriting. Uh, she does claim American Indian heritage. And so this is just going to be, a, a, a continue to raise this issue that it looked like she had put behind her. The issue is that she, a lot of people wanted to her to apologize years ago when she first ran for Senate for ever claiming this heritage appropriately, they would say, you know, she's not really Native American. She has some Native American ancestry, but she's not enrolled in the tribes, the critics would say. Uh, And she didn't. Instead, she took the DNA test seeming to go the other direction, and now she's been backtracking. The DNA test was universally considered a mistake. She apologized to the Cherokee Nation. She's apologized to people privately. And now this this new thing is going to keep it going. It's having a hard time shaking it, right? Yeah. Yeah, she really is. Uh, so Beto yesterday, uh, last time we heard he was out in his pickup truck and, you know, <laughs> getting his teeth cleaned or whatever and videotaping everything or Instagramming everything. Yesterday he appeared with Oprah. I mean, the fact that Oprah would give him that platform, Times Square, New York, right, uh, and really seemed to be pushing him to run. Uh, And um, he said he's seriously considering it. Yeah, I mean, not just Oprah, not just Times Square, but his co-panelists were Michael B. Jordan and Bradley Cooper, two of the the hottest actors of the moment, you know, in the kind of Oscar buzz, yeah, both yeah. Of their movies. Yeah, who else? You know, the other senators are not getting invited to that platform. So it speaks to the kind of cultural cachet I think that Beto O'Rourke has in a lot of liberal parts mm-hmm. of America. Uh, but he's his stock has definitely fallen since he, he's he's been out of the public eye. The, I think the the dentist visit did not help. Uh, he gave an interview to the Washington Post in which he kind of seemed to not have a, 
a clear idea on the policy of what to do about the border. So there's been this kind of growing idea that he's a, a bit of a an empty suitor, a bit of a policy lightweight. He's he can skateboard, but but can he really be president? Right. Uh, so th- th- he has not addressed any of that, and that would have to be something that he he does address. But it sounds like he's taking it more seriously, and it sounds like we'll have a decision by the end of the month. Uh, but so far, he's just a personality, isn't he? That's that's kind of the issue, right? And he's extremely charismatic. He's cool. He's hip. Uh, but I think he would need to build underneath that some substance and show. I mean, you know, can you picture him in the Situation Room ordering drone strikes? That that's the <laughs> the drone test. There's the beer test. That's that's my drone test. Um, I don't know. And and uh, especially when you have people like Warren and and uh, and Sanders and Harris and these. People who are already having this big debate about, you know, what type of Medicare for all bill should be in the picture. We're going to have these massive policy debates uh, in this primary field. And if he gets in, he'll have to deal with that. He's also been taking some flack on his left flank for not being he's, he's seen as a as a progressive. But they say, well, that's he was running in Texas. So anybody yeah. who looks super progressive in Texas and he's he's not that. And uh, they say he's, you know. Kind of a fig leaf there. Uh, among Democrats, who else do you see getting in? Uh, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown. Those would be my big three to, aside from Beto, uh, to keep an eye on. So yeah, Sherrod Brown is is continuing to do this this tour. It's, he's not a candidate, but he's going to early states. And dignity of work tour. Dignity of work tour. Yeah, and I, I think he's got a, a message. Uh, the question is whether he's willing to to do the the work of the running. It's a tough mm-hmm. job. Joe Biden is. Probably the and Bernie Sanders, of course, too. You you know Bernie well. Still, a lot of people who like him. He gave a response to the State of the Union mm-hmm. last night. But I think Joe Biden is kind of the big um, unknown question. I, it, it sounds to me like Bernie's going to do it. I would guess Sherrod does it. Or either way, the the field will not be fundamentally altered. Whether Sherrod, you Brown, sound less certain that Joe Biden would. I'm less certain that Joe Biden will. That's right. Uh, it, he is sitting on about thirty percent, about a third of the of the vote, according to early polls. The polls, I don't think, mean anything right now. But it does. But but it points to his unique position in the field. He has been from people that we've talked to. He is up and down day to day. He says the same things to to different people, and they hear what they want to hear. So people want him to run. Say right. he's going to run. Uh, so it's really hard to know where he ultimately is on this. But I think it would be very tough. Um, and personally, I mean, there, there's a lot in his record. I think Donald Trump would have no problem going after that on Twitter. And the party has moved so much for him. Uh, the president yesterday at his lunch with the network TV anchors said that he hopes that Joe runs, but he would love to run against Joe Biden because he's so dumb. Yeah. And, you know, to obviously take that with a grain of salt. He it, Trump would. Uh, Joe Biden is not dumb. Joe Biden is not <laughs> dumb. Yeah. And and you never you don't never know if Trump like is is being giving his ugly by a frog, <laughs> and you don't know if Trump, he's giving his honest opinion or if he's trying to influence things. Uh, but he is that that kind of moderate lane that I was saying that there's the appetite for that. That's where Joe Biden is is could right. excel. And so if he doesn't go, then there's a a whole bunch of people, Terry McAuliffe, uh, Mitch Landry, the former governor or uh, mayor of of. Mm-hmm. St. Louis, excuse me, uh, New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah. Um, people who would try to jump in to occupy that lane, but no one has the stature of Joe Biden. No, right. Um, would Michael Bloom- Bloomberg be someone who might fit into that lane? Very potentially, yeah, especially if Joe Biden doesn't doesn't run. I think Bloomberg at the moment is kind of in his own 
lane. Um, and I don't know that he would be acceptable even to, uh, you know, your kind of typical Joe Biden voter. I think you can't count him out because money is unfortunately very, pol- very important in politics and mm-hmm. being able yeah. to spend a hundred million dollars or more automatically makes you a tender. But yeah, if, if Joe Biden doesn't run, then I think Bloomberg, that's very, very good for Michael Bloomberg. Now, the one person that we thought was going to run as a Democrat and run maybe in this, in this uh, middle of the road, moderate, pro-business lane was Howard Schultz. Yeah. Who says he can't run as a Democrat now because he'd be forced to agree with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's not how that works, but no, uh, exactly, not necessarily. <laughs> you can disagree with her, free country, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, this has to be one of the worst rollouts of any potential presidential candidate for his stature. Uh, for that, you know, we've seen in a long time. I, I don't know. There was a poll. Uh, it's a actually from from Bernie's pollsters, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. But he had a four percent favorability rating, Howard Schultz, which I have Seems never. Seems a little high. Yeah, Seems a high. <laughs> I have never seen that. I did. I it didn't even know that that was possible. It was a disastrous rollout. It really was. Yeah, the way he explained it, the way he talked about it, it he it came across as saying, "I've got to run. For, I can't run as a Democrat because then I would have to again agree with her. But then I'd have to raise taxes on myself." God, God forbid. God forbid. So it looked like his whole motivation was so that he would not have to pay more taxes. Right. Well, it, right. It does seem like one of the things that I'm very interested in, in this whole election, it seems like we're cutting out the middlemen between the kind of insurgent left, the, the Bernies and the Warrens, and the billionaires who they have gone after for, for years. It used to be a proxy war between think tanks and talking heads and, and you know, favorite candidates. Right. And now just, just let's just get the billionaires in there themselves and let's duke it out <laughs> directly. And I think that's actually probably a good debate uh, to have. So far, I would say the, the billionaires are, are have not making a great show for themselves. You know, the, the thing about Howard Schultz is the more I think about it, this might be a little bit of a hot take. Uh, and I, and I, I really sincerely hope that he does not get into the race. I think he might be more damaging to Trump than he would be for Democrats. I know a lot of Democrats really? are kind of freaking out hmm. because Howard Schultz didn't take any real clear stand on progressive politics in terms of the social and cultural politics that Democrats love to sort of embrace, but he really leaned into the economics of it all. And I think there could be a lot of, you know, business type Republicans that, you know, they like Howard Schultz because he doesn't outwardly say the nasty things that Donald Trump says. I mean, economically, he is a Republican, Howard Schultz. Yeah. Well, he he also... All um, that being said, he, I'd rather not play with fire. No, I'm I don't just saying I don't. No, I, I still I, think he'd take more from. I'm afraid from. Uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to run the risk. <laughs> I guess with yeah. Howard Schultz or anybody else. But um, it, it, the negative reaction to his potential candidacy certainly seemed to have knocked him somewhat for a loop. Where now he says, "Look, I'm going to take three or four months to decide." Right. Right. He might as well not run if he's going to wait for three or four months. No. Well, he w- he doesn't have to deal with the primary That's process, true. That's so he true. he is yeah. on a little bit of a different timeline. Right. But but it does seem, um, I think he was the th- the whole thing struck me that he had not seriously considered what running for president would mean and what the reaction would be like. Because you're right. I mean, the, the, his advisors have told me that he expected it, but I I frankly don't believe that. I think he was. Absolutely caught off guard by how vociferous the the reaction was, especially from Democrat. He's been a Democrat his whole life. He's given something right. like two hundred thousand dollars to the party over the last few decades. I, I think it was that had to to catch him off guard, and and he just didn't. 
There was a lot of issues that he had not, it didn't seem like he had thought about them. It seemed like, it seemed very out of touch, and I mean that in the most basic way, in that he just did not have a sense of where the political conversation was. And I must admit that before that, I always found him somewhat attractive because he's a progressive business leader. He did great things for his employees in terms of benefits, in terms of you know, helping them get a college education, right? You know, I mean, very enlightened, if you will, a business. And I thought this would be a, a good mi- part of the mix, right? And then suddenly he comes out just sort of wacky. But in terms of if his was the most disastrous rollout, um, have you been impressed with how strong a rollout Kamala Harris had? I, I'm going to have to agree with Donald Trump on this, who said that she had the best rollout of any candidate. I think she had absolutely hands a, down. Yeah, that that the the crowd in uh, Oakland, Oakland that she drew. It's her hometown, is California, but still to get that that big of a crowd, uh, it, it looked it was a you know very well run. It set a very high bar in terms of optics, crowds, speech for any. Uh, presidential candidate. And I think she's the front runner essentially at the moment, which is maybe not the place you want to be a year out from the Iowa caucuses. Uh, but it seems, it's, like I said, that it's me speaking. It seems like she wants to be there or else you don't do that kind of rally as your opening move. Right. Uh, and again, it's some way to distinguish from the beginning, I think she wanted to distinguish herself from the pack. I mean, uh, com- contrast that, not that Cory Booker tried to outdo her, but Cory Booker just had some reporters show up at his house in Newark, right? And he right. walks out his front door and and talks. And Elizabeth Warren, who I guess officially announces this weekend, but we're, we all know, you know, New Year's Eve is when she did the same thing. Reporters on her front lawn up in Boston. I mean, right? She's yes. Yeah, so she's technically exploring. She's in the exploratory phase, uh, and she yeah. will formally announce her decision. Uh, spoiler alert: She's running for president uh, on, se- yeah. on Saturday. But yeah, I, I do think Warren had a good, um, maybe second best uh, rollout. I think it was smart actually to get in New Year's Eve. I was a doubter of that, but it gave mm-hmm. her a lot of time. I was in Iowa with her earlier uh, or last month, um, and she was very well received. And she had the entire state to herself for two or three weeks. And there's there's just so much pent up energy among Iowa Democrats that I think they they like Elizabeth Warren, but they also would like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, any of these people. And she was just the first one to mm. show up. They they just are so eager to start trying to beat Donald Trump that she get, got big big crowds uh, out there. And I, think that, I do think that works to her advantage. Well, you know that somebody is very serious about running for president because yesterday uh, he said that he has a boo. A boo. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so Cory Booker has a girlfriend. Yeah. Well, this well, I, we haven't had a single who knew? A single right. president in a while. The, the, if you read the blogs, uh, if you read In Touch Weekly and such places, as I'm sure, as you, I know you do. Uh, yeah. Uh, then then you you might hear the rumors that he's dating not just a girlfriend, but has a, a famous girlfriend, mm-hmm. uh, Rosario Dawson, the the actress uh, who is a big Bernie supporter and. 2016. So there's a coup for him. <laughs> Who's also talked about running for office? Has she? Has. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So pretty amazing that she went from being so hardcore for Bernie. I mean, even at the uh, convention in 2016, she was still on board with with Bernie Sanders. And uh, for her to go uh, uh, with someone like Cory Booker is is a little bit different. A little bit different. Well, we don't know that she's voting for him. Maybe. That's true. That's, that's true. That's <laughs> date, true. Date Corey, vote for Bernie. Yeah, this could be a James Carville, Mary Madeline situation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Booker's, Booker's going to be a, a, a significant candidate for sure. 
I think so. Yeah, he's he's got kind of in raw natural political talent, oratory skills. He's really tough to beat uh, in the party. And I think an African-American candidate is a a huge advantage uh, in a party where it's about one in five um, voters in the the primary are going to be African-American. South Carolina is huge. The South the South votes early. So, yes, that's that's a big. So one of the stories that uh, that uh, you've you've uh, written lately is, uh, and we've talked now about just about everybody who's popped up, either already in or might get in, uh, among the Democrats. That in looking the field over, the number one advantage, the number one um, factor, I guess, or advantage that people are looking for is not necessarily whether you're right, left, or in the middle, but who can beat Donald Trump. Yeah. Right? It's which just surprised me, and that's unusual. I, I, I encountered it. That's what I hear from Democrats all across the country. Yeah. Because you know? everybody's going to be left of center, right? Right. So whether you're a little left of center or Ocasio or uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez left of center or Bernie left of center, you're going to be left of center. So which one can be Trump? Right. and That's and, the one we want. It, and I've heard this anecdotally, but then there was a poll out this week that, that really confirmed it from oh, Monmouth uh-huh. uh, that showed a majority, I think it was 54% of uh, primary voters said they would rather have somebody who can beat Donald Trump, even if they don't agree with them on all the issues, than on just 33% chose the opposite of that, rather have somebody who they agree with on the issues who might have a harder time uh, beating Trump. And that's historically, that's unusual. Uh, in December of 2015, NBC News asked kind of a similar question of Democratic primary voters. So this is a month before the Iowa caucus in 2016. And it was just 16% of people said their number one issue was who can best beat wow. Republicans. Wow. So people wow. are spooked from 2016. You know, yeah. They're, yeah. they're really spooked. The problem is no one knows what electability that's true. looks like. Yeah. And, but I mean, I think that's a good starting point. I really do. I think that's a good way to, to to look at it because you keep your eye on the ball, right? Yeah. And it's not to win on every single issue, but it's to get the White House back and to get Donald Trump out of there. Uh, uh, someone whose job is very, very much uh, directed toward getting back the White House, uh, and that is the director of communications for the Democratic National Committee, our good friend Soshi Inohosa. Uh, joining us, uh, Alex Weitzwald and me and all of you, uh, after we take a quick break, we'll be right back. Focus more on the State of the Union and more on 2020 with all of you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. And here we are on this Wednesday, the morning after the State of the Union. Uh, if we can still call it a State of the Union address, I'm not sure that's what we heard last night. At any rate, we're coming to you live from Washington, D.C. in our studio just down the street from the United States Capitol and brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers, the Teachers of America, doing the Lord's work in our classrooms every single day under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten. Uh, just coming off the heels of a big victory out in Los Angeles. Uh, we salute them and thank them for their support of the program. Check out their website at AFT.org. On the news of the day, the State of the Union, uh, the state of the uh, 2020 presidential campaign, particularly on the Democratic side, Alex Seitzwald from NBC News here with us. The entire hour as a friend of Bill. 
Uh, we're all a little jet lagged from watching the speech <laughs> last night, uh, including Soshi Inohosa, who's the communications director for the Democratic National Committee. Soshi, it's nice to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for the coffee I needed this morning. Uh, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Uh, so before we get started, we, we're looking for some breaking news this morning. The last time we talked to you, we were working on uh, the debate schedule for 2020. Yes. It starts in April. Do we it ha- starts in June. I'm sorry, in June, right? Yes. Uh, do we have the date and the place for the first debate? Um, we don't, but we are oh. very close. We are very close. I'll have to come back <laughs> next time and break it on here. Um, and I'm sorry about that. We don't, but we're very close, and um, we will have an announcement soon on the June and July debates, partners, and threshold, because a lot of candidates are uh, wanting to know whether they qualify. That's the big question that, right now. Well, that was my next question, is have <laughs> you decided, how are you, how are you going to decide which candidates get on which stage? What do you think, Alex? That's a good question. I want to know. (laughs) Well, we won't be picking specific candidates and who gets on which stage, but what we will be doing is we'll be looking at polling. um, And normally the Democratic Committee, Democratic National Committee has done debates based on polling, but we'll also be looking at things like grassroots fundraising. We've seen um, throughout the last few cycles that grassroots fundraising seems to be a really big big um you know point that people like to make on the campaign in terms of showing support um for a candidate and so we want to make sure that we are taking that seriously and that we are lifting that up as much as possible but if you go by polling pete Buttigieg is never going to make it to the big stage right and maybe he should he's a good young man with a lot of good ideas uh first lbgtq candidate in the history of the country so why should he be excluded because he doesn't have high name? Where Amy Klobuchar would probably not make it to the big stage, right, Alex? Uh, I mean, it depends where you set the bar. If you if you set it at one percent, uh, then maybe they would. And I believe they're, they're going to randomize. Or how, how's mm-hmm. that? How's that going to work? So what we plan on doing for the first two debates is we don't know how many people will be in the race. I mean, I think we can all try to guess. I think a lot of people have said double digits. If we do have double digits, um, if we're looking at more like 20 people, we are prepared to have debates two consecutive nights. um, And then from there, we would pick the candidates at random and put them on stage um, just to make sure that we are fair. But I think that it we, it remains to be seen how many people jump in. Um, and so that's what we're taking a look at right now. But someone like Pete Buttigieg, we want to let them know or, or, you know, whether you're polling at one percent or not um, or at a certain percentage in an early state or a national poll, then I think that we want to give people another opportunity, another um, mechanism to get on the debate stage. And that's why we are bringing in potentially this grassroots fundraising piece. How do you Mm -hmm. deal with it if, uh, say, like Joe Biden has not gotten into the, not made a decision one way or another yet, he's at like 30% in the polls right now. Mm -hmm. Do you you take him into account? Do you, because most polls don't ask second choice you know, how, how do you deal with that? That's something that we're looking at. But Joe Biden or whoever the candidate might be, um, if they haven't made a decision by then, I mean, we've been made very clear when the debates will start. And so you would think that 
candidates would want to get in by then to use this platform in order to talk about their ideas. But that is something that we're looking at. And we're not going to look at just one poll. We're going to look at many polls. Do you know how many total debates uh, you plan to schedule? We will have 12. So that is double the amount that was announced in 2016, as Alex might remember, um, than others were added. Um, but we that is along the lines of what Republicans did. But we want to do things different. We understand that the Republican debates were a little messy. You had um, situations where people did not think that they were fair as well. And so we are trying to make sure that we're giving everyone a level. They're starting off at a, at a level playing field. Mm -hmm. uh, so last night, the president of the United States issued a strong call for unity, uh, working together and compromise a new day in American politics where we're going to put behind us the politics of resistance and revenge. Uh, how is that call received by Democrats? Well, this was just red meat for his base. This is That's all that it was. He was, if you looked at his remarks, he was talking about um, abortion, about um, the wall, about all of these things that tend to divide our country, continues to make it seem like immigrants are criminals when, frankly, our diversity is our greatest strength here. And so I think that last night you heard a lot of division. You also didn't hear anything about the shutdown, which I thought was interesting, because if anything, you would think that the president would apologize for the shutdown or at least apologize to workers who didn't get a check, whether he thinks it's his fault or not. He owned up to the shutdown. But at the same time, I think that that was something that he completely omitted that people noticed and people wanted to hear from him on that. And so he I did think not that even it's, it's an important point. I think he did not even mention not once the shutdown. Yeah. Even if he had blamed it on somebody else. Yes. Or it's regretful that we that we it had to come to this or something. Not that he would take the blame for all the eyes privately, but he did not even mention the fact that he could only speak because this was a brief three-week interim between shutdowns. And we might have another one next yeah. week. Uh, the yeah, funding right. runs out on the 15th, the day after Valentine's Day. And, uh, yeah, so the, you you would think he could use this as a call to, to say we need to solve this. Uh, and the, even the date of the State of the Union was changed, remember? Nancy Pelosi under, uh, yeah. pushed him to not do it while the government was shut down. So it is a pretty noticeable omission. If he had said... We can't have another shutdown, right? We, we, we really need to work together so we can avoid another shutdown. That would have been a tremendous applause line, but he didn't, didn't mention it at all. It was stunning. And there were a lot of people in the gallery, uh, a lot of members of the American Federation of Government Employees, TSA employees, who worked 35 days without a paycheck, who were in the gallery as guests of some Democrats. No, they were never recognized, by the way, among all the people who were recognized in the gallery. He also didn't bring up gun violence, and that is an issue. There were people there who were, were victims, who were of, gun victims of gun violence. And while he did bring up um, other victims and um, within his speech, which I think that he, you know, that is he rightfully should have done that. I think that was something that was omitted that people noticed as well. Didn't bring up climate change. There are a lot of issues that are front and center right now that you would think you would bring up. Also, if you looked at the last midterm election. These are all issues that voters cared about. And every president after a midterm election, when you lose, 
a midterm election, when your party loses, you make some acknowledgement to come together and you actually try to put things on the table that both parties will agree on. And that didn't happen. And it's it's almost like he completely ignored the midterm election, although he did acknowledge all the women who were elected to Congress, which I thought was interesting. That was the most fun part of the <laughs> evening, right? <laughs> And so I was like, he almost could not get out of it once he got <laughs> into it. I noticed at first, the first line was, he said something about there are more women in the workforce than ever before. And the people didn't quite get it until I noticed a couple of the women, Democratic women, started going, yeah, here we are, right? And then others noticed it, and then they picked it up. And that's when Peter, if we can again, he, he realized what was going on. And he sort of ad-libbed, okay, here we go now. This is for you. Don't sit yet. You're going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly one century after Congress passed the constitutional amendment giving women the right to vote, we also have more women serving in Congress than at any time before. And that's when they started dancing in the aisles there, right? Chanting USA, USA. And they were chanting USA. No, I thought that was very funny in response to the Republicans chanting it earlier when he talked about the wall, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, The you know, did not expect to see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez dancing to Donald Trump's State of the Union, but uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and it was pointed out last night by, I forget who I was watching, that there are 102 women in the House only 13 of them are Republicans. So that sea of white was remarkable, right? And that was the, the one the one. The, the, the number of Republican women actually went down this year because yeah. from, from previously uh, because of retirements and losses. Um, and, it's, and it's pretty stunning. Elise Stefanik, who's a Republican congresswoman from upstate New York, has now decided to kind of give up on the NRCC, the official campaign arm, and start her own organization to recruit women uh, to, and she even said that she'll back them in Republican primaries. So if the if the, oh, a party yeah. backs a man, somebody else, she will find women to to run. And she even recruited, I think, two already uh, pretty high profile potential candidates for twenty twenty to try to get more women Republican, more, more women, women Republican. Yeah, right. Um, he's the president among <laughs> other things. He, he after after this call for partisan bipartisanship and everything. Of course, it was pretty much a partisan. Republican Party rally, right, uh, rallying his yeah. troops. Um, uh, and along the way, he did have some, took some swipes, uh, many swipes at Democrats. The one was um, accusing Democrats, I don't know who he was talking about here other than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or maybe Bernie Sanders, of trying to bring socialism back to this country. We are alarmed by the new calls to adopt Socialism in our country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who's that referring? I mean, is that the policy? Is that the platform of the DNC? That goes to his base. This is what he was trying to do with his entire speech. He wants to scare. He wants to scare the American people and divide us. And that's what you saw. I mean, that's what go- it goes along with the border wall, which is not a border security. Um mechanism and it's not going to necessarily keep people out. It, you know, goes with his talks about abortion. He's trying 
to make sure that he excites his base and scare other people. And that was, I mean, that was just completely absurd. Well, out, he, out of all the things to pick and out of all the things to address the country with, that's the issue you're going to pick. He followed up, I have my notes, it's quote, uh, it's word for word, quote, he followed up by boasting, making this declaration, <laughs> America will never be a socialist country. Duh. <laughs> right? I mean... The Republicans, of course, applauded. Oh, man, yeah. Uh, Red baiting, as it used to be called, it's long, very strong history in the Republican Party. Richard Nixon got his start uh, by you know running out communist, not communist. socialist, but yeah, right. Yeah. But but it doesn't matter that for for them the the point is is all the the same. Uh, and you know that's why comparing Venezuela, even though I I don't think anybody who even identifies as a socialist, certainly not Bernie Sanders or Alexander Costa Cortez are supporting Nicolas Maduro and the the Venezuelan regime but it is it's red meat for the base the it, it you hold up the enemy uh, even if they're not very powerful even if it's a the handful of people to uh, be a, a effective foil for you yeah and sort of might worth pointing out that what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez maybe is best known for so far in her ideas which certainly are a long way from being enacted through the congress would be a 70% income tax rate on income over $10 million. But taxing the rich is not the definition of socialism. Right? In fact, we, we, <laughs> Hardly. We, we have had tax rates that high in higher. this country, or higher, yeah, under right. Republican uh, presidents in the past and Democratic presidents. But yeah, FDR, I mean, FDR was called a socialist uh, by, by some in his time. So I think it's it just... I think Democrats have been kind of scared of their own shadow a little bit uh, and when they be, get called socialist, but that seems to be changing now. Right. You're going to get called a socialist no matter what. You know, uh, one thing you mentioned, he missed an opportunity. I thought, he, not the strongest point of the whole evening, but that he missed an opportunity just to do the gracious thing of congratulating Nancy Pelosi. He didn't start by acknowledging that we have a new speaker. Congratulations, Madam Speaker. It would have been, I thought, a nice gesture. To, I, even from Donald Trump, I expected him to do it, right? And, I wouldn't uh, be surprised if it was potentially in his speech and then he said, no, I wouldn't do that. I mean, that's something that just, do, that Donald Trump does not do. He is, I think, very angry probably at her at the moment. And I also, but I was surprised at that as well. I mean, I think that Another thing that I was surprised by and is that, you know, if you're talking about the Democratic response versus Donald Trump's speech, there yeah. are about eight, maybe eight proposals in Donald Trump's speech, actual policy proposals, while Stacey Abrams brought to the table dozens of proposals and she went through them. Um, and so I thought that that was interesting, given that if you look at previous State of the Union addresses, you had I remember in the Obama administration, we would go through and it was an every agency was mentioned at some point in, know. you know, in the State of the Union I and know. some policy By issue about how they were going to impact the American people. That's such a good point. And that was one of my biggest takeaways is, you know, even going back to George W. Bush, uh, oh, he God. had a list yeah. of things. Oh, no. Some of them were Sometimes really weird. Sometimes too much of a laundry list yeah, on yeah. the part of both of them. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, and like, this is what I'd like to see but, accomplished in the coming yeah. year. Yeah. And, yeah. and Donald Trump was like, please don't investigate me. We're sending more <laughs> troops to the border. Uh, stop talking about socialism. It was, it, there were no real big ideas floating around up there. And when he did get around to ideas at the end, uh, the, a lot of them were just totally recycled from last year, like infrastructure. It's a, a throwaway. They always put at the end of the speech and 
everybody applauds it and then nothing happens. Right? Which is uh, the, the one thing that actually could Democrats have. in Congress and, and Donald Trump could agree on yes. and potentially get a, a big deal. Then I, I mean, I still think there's an alternate universe in which Trump out of the gate, instead of trying to repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. does a big infrastructure package, splits the Democratic caucus because they, they're confused about whether they should work with Trump or or just do the better thing and, and do a big infrastructure package. And then he could rise above he the both parties, tell Paul Ryan that he won't do his bidding. And it's a totally different universe that we're in. He's more like a, an Eisenhower uh, kind of you know independent figure, which I think is who he imagines he is and not just being kicked around by Mitch McConnell. Uh, if he had done him. that, uh, th- th- his presidency would have gotten off to an entirely different start. Uh, yeah, yeah. And a positive start. And by the way, I just read Chris Christie's new book, Let Me Finish, is the <laughs> title of his book, where that was his, he says at least, that was his recommendation to Donald Trump. But Steve Bannon and um, um, Stephen Miller and Jared Kushner all said, no, no, you got to go after Obamacare. Uh, and if if Christie's right that that's what he recommended, and I believe him, uh, it showed he was the one guy that had little governing experience dealing with a Democratic legislature, and he knew how to get some things done. Also, have some uh, experience with infrastructure and it's, uh, uh, discontent. Yes, yes, but, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes right. uh, but on the, on the State of the Union, I, I will say in, pre- in the president's defense, I will say if you talk to speechwriters, this is the, notoriously the hardest speech to ever write. It's it's yes. long, yes. and you want to balance it between the the laundry list thing and the substance. But also, you have a captive audience of millions of Americans, many of whom don't. Typically, right. pay attention to politics. This might be the one speech they watch all year. So you also want to reach them with your larger message. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's not surprising that Trump would lean more on the the message side of things than the policy laundry list side of things. Yes, yeah. and we never give enough attention to the or as uh, 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 much attention as we should to the response. But I have to say, I thought Stacey, Stacey Abrams did a very good job last night. I completely agree. That is also a hard platform. Uh, it's it impossible. is. It is awkward. It is yeah. something no. that is. Um, no one has really ever succeeded at giving the response, but I think no. that she did. And I think that she was very energetic and she's, you need, you know, younger voices, diverse vo- voices in our party to come up. And that's what excites our base. Right. And that's what she told her story. She did talk about policy, but I think it was extremely personal for her. And I, um, right. I'm really glad that she did the response. I think she did a fantastic job. It was a clear contrast for us too. I think it also reflected how we won and the races that we won in midterm elections. Even though she didn't win, she brought a lot of great support and she's not going anywhere. She she's going about to be some someone. important in issues. Our, exactly. Particularly voter suppression I thought was very strong. And of course, she's a victim of that. And, uh, and just who she is giving that response, I thought spoke volumes, right? Uh, before you go, and before we run out of time, I, I'm going to jump from that level to another level, which is an unresolved issue right across the river. Uh, an interesting statement, Peter, yesterday from a state senator in Virginia, Richard Stewart, um, kind of a minority voice in Virginia at the moment. Here he is. I think he can withstand it. He He's a guy who's got the strength of his convictions. He knows what he's got to do. He's going to go out here and work on things. He's going to work on race relations. And I think this commonwealth in the country will be better for it. Richard Stewart saying Governor Ralph Northam is going to ride it out and he should stay. So she? No, he should not stay. We believe that he should go. Um, It is, it's gone on too long. We, um, 
what happened. And I think that over the weekend and on Friday, not only was the photo extremely disturbing for a lot of people in our party, um, and Chairman Perez spoke out about this, but it's also the press conference after. None of it was um, great. And I think that it actually made it worse. And I think that he needs to go and he needs to give Democratic leaders also the space and other leaders to rise up. And um, because this has gone just way too long. Um, Steve King, Republicans may have condemned him, but nobody called for Steve King to resign. Uh, Alec, that, that's Alex. right. They did. And they, they took their time in removing him from committees. His committee ship. Yeah. Oh, yeah years, only only years. after they had lost the House and uh, <laughs> the, the perceived danger was gone. Um, I, I will say, though, in Virginia, it's now complicated because part of the, the, the flood of calls for Northam to resign uh, was made easier because the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, is this young, yeah. charismatic uh, African-American guy who's a rising star. But now he's been hit by, by a sexual assault uh, allegation, which he has adamantly denied. So uh, it makes things... And, and does seem somewhat questionable, although we don't know all the facts, so I don't want to... Right. Well, he he there, did but. not do himself favors. In uh, he put out the statement saying the Washington Post looked into yeah. this and they found red flags. And the Washington Post said, "No, we didn't find red flags. We just couldn't get confirm, uh, it. confirm it." Which is it is different. It, it's a different thing. Uh, so now you have the, the both right. leaders in the line of succession question, and that uh, it's 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 a it's a mess uh, to say the least. And there's now rumors that Northam is considering changing parties to to leave the Democratic Party and become an independent because the parties essentially abandoned him. Entirely. Well, do you think he can survive? It, I mean, he can. What, what does survival mean, though? His agenda is yeah. done at this point. No, I think he has to go. I think for the common good of the Commonwealth of Virginia and for the nation and for the Democratic Party. And so, well, um, we just scratched the surface here, but uh, thank you so much. So, she's nice to see you. Thank you. Good so, to see the you. good chairman thank for you. us. Uh, and Alex, so on the road again. Come back and bring us up to date as soon as you can. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Have a good Wednesday, folks. We'll see you again tomorrow right here. We'll be looking for you. This is the Bill Press Show. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) Auto Trader.